Hi, and welcome to The Sustainable Century, where we explore with experts, with leaders, activists, communities of interest, mothers, fathers, and kids, how to buy, how to work, and how to invest for happier lives and a healthier planet. I'm your host, Mark D'Souza Shields. Uh, welcome, everybody. Our guest today is Eric Steedman. He's a pioneering, sustainable, and responsible investment expert. Now spends a lot of his time advising social enterprise organizations, businesses, etc., out of Montreal in Canada. He's also a startup enterprise coach at Concordia University, great university there in Montreal, called District Three Innovation Hub. So you can check that out at Concordia. Uh, welcome, Eric. Great to be here, Mark. Thanks. No, I, I hope things are going well with you all in the lockdown and uh, and you're able to get some stuff done because you're doing a lot of really great work. Before we get to that, I want to go to a blast in the past. Um, you and I were part of a group called the Morelos Forum. It was a bit of a think tank on how to use money to, to further social, environmental, culture, all these great things in, in the world, make things a little bit more sustainable. And about 15 years ago, we were at one of the events and and during a rather uh, <laughs> intense discussion on social and environmental responsibility and finance, uh, you stood up, you were surrounded by sustainable and responsible investors representing billions and billions of dollars. And you stood up and shouted in frustration, you said, smash TVs. <laughs> I think it was one of the iconic moments of the Morello's Forum, which, which lasted for 15 or 16 years. What did you mean then, and what would you say now with the advent of social media? Well, um, yeah, no, it's still something that, uh, for me, it remains a, 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 you know, a big moment in my life, I guess. Uh, maybe I had a bit of an epiphany then, too. But um, uh, back then, I guess I saw TV as a tool for promoting mainstream, you know, media propaganda, uh, or I guess drivel for the mind, as my father uh, would say. Um, and, uh, you know, barking orders at the viewer to go and buy shit they don't really need. Um, uh, now, I guess, fast forward, social media really amped up this process like a million fold. Um, promotes even more, in my, I would say, more groupthink. Um, and uh, also, you know, as we know with the partisanship you see in the politics in the U.S. and the rise of nationalism, et cetera, elsewhere, uh, you know, and all the, the weird crazy stuff that's going on around uh, right. um, you know I think it's social media now so I guess what I would say would be like smash Twitter <laughs> hey, hey wait a minute I like Twitter <laughs> nah, I've never been a big fan I've never been a user but uh, anyway um, well well Eric I, I, I think and that's a metaphor for uh, you know for, for social for, media yeah I, I know breaking through um, you know the bonds um, uh, of you know, the technology channels that, that tend to dominate and limit one's thinking. Yeah. Well, I kind of think social media is a two-way, two, is a double-edged sword, I suppose, because there's a lot of truth that does get said because of the access that people who uh, want to tell the truth or want to see the truth or want to find the truth, right? Uh, so th there is that avenue for them there. But then on the other side, it's, a, you know, the avenue for people who don't give a crap about the truth or are too lazy to find out what the truth is and substitute opinion for uh, the truth. Uh, and so I, I'm kind of a mixed emotion about it. But I think what, you know, what, 
what I loved about Smash TVs was it's all about the truth. It's all about confronting, you know, confronting the reality that we need to or want to change, particularly in this con context of wanting, you know, to support all things sustainable. And so mm -hmm. I, it was an iconic moment, I think, in terms of saying the truth really matters. And I, maybe we're just getting further away from the truth. Uh, I don't know. I, yeah, maybe we are. I mean, uh, it's possible. I think you're right. Social media has two sides to it. A lot of people go looking uh, to, you know, to validate what they already believe, um, which is not truth. That's just uh, perception, um, which is a which is a word that I've heard increasingly. You know, well, yeah. I believe that's how I perceive things, so it must be real, right? Um, anyway, <laughs> it's uh, which is scary in itself. You know, uh, well, maybe I. Too much, you know. Maybe I read uh, Socrates if you, uh, took him too literally back then with the big deep type truth, but not to get not to get into too much detail around the philosophical <laughs> underpinnings of it. But uh, I think we're we're generally in agreement there. Well, uh, we'll we'll spend some time uh, maybe on another CAD uh, podcast talking about Socrates. But um, so, but let's let's turn to some of the stuff that you're doing now. I mean. Uh, given your, uh, you know, your sort of smash TV philosophies and trying to find the truth in all things sustainable, I mean, what made you move from, uh, because, I mean, you were big into uh, social, uh, su uh, sustainable and responsible uh, investment, but you made the move to social enterprise. Uh, what, what, what happened? What, tell us why you did that and, and how it's kind of addressing the problems you see that need addressing these days. Uh, well, yeah. maybe, you, maybe you can start with the definition of, of social enterprise. Uh, well, social enterprise, um, yeah, I'll, I tell you what, I'll give you the official Canadian government definition, um, which uh, <laughs> um, basically any organization whose mission is to advance social and environmental objectives carry out while carrying out income generating activities. Um, so they're also known as social purpose organizations, though I like that less. Uh, that moniker less, but include registered charities, community organizations, social economy enterprises, i.e. for-profits, that can be sole proprietorships, uh, corporations um, that advance a social or environmental mission, I would add, and put that mission above the generation of profit, which I think maybe goes back also and, and explains somewhat um, the journey I took from Shuri. I like, you know, I had a very successful uh, promising career ahead of me in social investment. Uh, I was very lucky that way. And, uh, you know, at the time it aligned with my values and wanting to find a way to build a career that did something that motivated me because I believed in it. Right. Uh, and, you know, having come from a somewhat, I guess, you know, a comfortable middle-class kid who was also, you know, had some radical uh, tendencies <laughs> and ideas. So, but, but you know, my, not that I was became cynical, but I realized that, you know, social investing just wasn't giving me the, the return I needed, um, i.e. it wasn't impactful enough. And I wasn't able to see the tangible results of what I was doing. You know, and I, and I recognized that SRI and a lot of the people we know who spent their careers in it um, has, has had a huge impact for good. Uh, but at the same time, you could be cynical and say, you know, well, look where we are with climate change and Trump and, and globalization and, and, um, and income disparity, et cetera. And it really, you know, it hasn't done uh, what, we, what we maybe had hoped to do. Anyway, all that to say, I wanted to do something more hands-on with community focus. So when I came back to Montreal from New York, um, 
yeah, I just, I took a path that was kind of experimenting on various things, but it took me now, it's taken me at 20, 21 years later, to a place I'm really happy with, where I work with local organizations for the most part, that can include local city government, to very frontline social services organizations. Um, and uh, I help them develop new business plans and innovate on their, uh, on their business models, as well as yeah. the startup I'm working with, who are all about innovating uh, uh, in terms of finding better models for delivering, uh, aligning their mission uh, with their activities. Well, give us give us an example of one that you're especially fond of over the course of your career, maybe. Um, well, I point back to let's say uh, Centre Paul Roulant, which is an organization uh, I know well. I be, it was founded by, you know, co-founded by two friends of mine when I returned to New York and I uh, to study here at, uh, at McGill in '98. I was invited to join the board. Um, it, it was a Meals on Wheels, and it was a Meals on Wheels that was innovative because it wasn't being run uh, uh, and staffed by, you know, uh, sorry to be cliche, but some 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 retired woman in a church basement. Um, it, it, it had useful energy, and it decided that they wanted to, to undertake intergenerational approaches to Meals on Wheels, breaking isolation, isolation, which so many seniors face. Um, we know that here in Montreal and, and, and many parts of the world where, you know, families don't tend to stay together and seniors tend to be isolated. Um, and we see that tragic results of that with what's happening with the spread of the impact of uh, COVID-19. Right. And, right. and elsewhere, uh, as we know. Anyway, intergenerational model, get young people involved, uh, cooking, uh, preparing meals, bringing seniors out of uh, their homes and bringing them together with, uh, with, young, with youth and everyone else in intergenerational settings, running events. I don't know, going to this time of year, we'd go to the Cabana Sook together. Um, I often drove uh, as a volunteer as well. Um, and then it decided to innovate by saying, well, hey, we produce food. Uh, we need food. Why don't we start growing our own food? So there's been a fairly big uh, community that's uh, taken over some of the historic uh, farmland that's still left in the west end of Montreal, um, where they've developed uh, the ability to actually uh, build their own local supply chain. And hey, they have meals left over that they're not serving, um, freeze them. They bought a freezer, uh, they started uh, uh, food transformation canning. So now they, you know, they, they don't generate a huge amount of income, but they're looking at ways of generating income by um, by entering the the more, you know, the the, the social economy market. Um, right. mm -hmm. So it's uh, it's moving beyond just charity, and it's become an organization that's been lauded and and and, and uh, applauded and supported for its innovative uh, innovative practices. They have a great garden. They've been a leader in urban bee, bee promoting urban beekeeping, all sorts of stuff. Anyway, wow, that's uh, fantastic. I mean, I, I mean, people talk about these kinds of you know community-driven social enterprises, and and they talk about the you know sort of the economic return on them in cold, objective terms. And and you mentioned it yourself; they don't make a lot of money. But I mean, people must feel tremendously fulfilled on any given day when they volunteer or even work for one of these organizations? I think they do. And I think that that's one of the, one of, to me, one of the examples of, shall we say, the resilience of social economy and why I believe it's got a strong future is 
the fact that it's really been able more than I feel some, you know, industries to overcome the challenges in terms of uh, in succession. Where older, you know, many of the management, you know, traditional management teams of the, in the community sector are retiring. They need younger people they, uh, to, to bring in energy and to, to accept jobs that, let's face it, pay much less than they do in the private sector. Um, so, you know, we have an employment crunch here, but yet, the, you know, in terms of human resources and attracting young, innovative staff who are willing to take, to take less pay for more, more benefit in terms of the the non-financial uh, impact, they've actually managed to do quite well. And I think that's, that's, that's a great sign in terms of the potential of the sector. Right. Well, let's take a little break now. We're with Eric uh, Steedman. He's a social enterprise development expert out of La Belleville, uh, Montreal in Canada. You can listen to a little bit of music rocking in the free world. Neil Young always gets my boat float. interface.ca understand that's uh, under a bit of construction right now but note it down and check them out later and if you're interested in social enterprise more generally check out socialenterprise.us or in Canada there's a number of alternatives one is the Canadian CED network anyways I also want to remind you that uh, last week the sustainable century solutions podcast featured community development expert Alan Okagaki He's a noted expert in financing community endeavors, so similar work is to what Eric is doing. You can find that podcast and 50 or more other sustainability experts uh, on podcasts for the sustainablecentury.net. So uh, that's where you're going to find this recording later today. So we're back with Eric. Hey, listen, Eric, you were mentioning some really interesting stuff about intergenerational transfer of social enterprise um, leadership. 
Um, I wanted to ask you, and it's kind of a personal question, but recently you renovated your house, added a third floor, and you are now officially an intergenerational house. Tell us a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. Um, yeah, it was uh, it's proven to be a very successful project. Uh, I lost about uh, five kilos <laughs> in the process <laughs> of the work, and my back still hurts. But uh, you know, it's, uh, my girlfriend and I, we both have uh, teenage daughters. Um, we got together a few years ago and decided that it's, uh, hey, why pay two rents? We want to be together. Um, you know, we must be able to find something affordable in central Montreal, which uh, took a bit of time and a bit of, quite a bit of luck, but we managed to uh, pick up a duplex up here in Park Extension. Um, and yeah, my, uh, I've spoken for years about the idea of my mother eventually uh, coming back to Montreal, the city she loves, where we used to, we used to live here when I was a kid. I have fond memories of her taking me to see the Expos when they played at Jari Park. <laughs> That's an old memory. <laughs> yeah, it's a big tennis center now, but there you go. Um, and uh, so when, uh, anyway, when, so she had the idea. She said, you know, I don't want to live in my three-story townhouse anymore in Ottawa. Uh, too many stairs. Uh, I was thinking, you know, better to make it. You know what? It's a great model. It was a lot of work. It worked financially because she was able to participate. We had thank, uh, help from my girlfriend, uh, Jackie's mom, uh, too. Um, so, you know, there's part of that intergenerational wealth transfer and support, and it's better to do it now than it is to do it later. Um, right. I believe it's good to be proactive, and so she could come here. She just turned 78. She's still in great shape. Um, she adores my daughter. We all get along. Um, yeah, sure, it has a few challenges, but she's got a separate apartment on the ground floor. Um, and hey, all of a sudden in the, in the quarantine, I'm so happy she's here. Yeah, and right. I yeah. have to go to Ottawa to shop for her and worry about her. Right. Um, so uh, it's it's worked out really well. And um, actually, I'll, I'll give you another example going back to the Centre Paul Roulon, which I, I mentioned we spoke about earlier. Uh, you know, it, it was uh, suggested to me actually that uh, Meals on Wheels wouldn't have to, wouldn't actually exist. I uh, would no longer longer be needed if everyone lived in an intergenerational model community. Yeah, and, and the, the, I think it's also an economic efficiency idea in the sense that we spend so many resources housing ourselves in isolation from, uh, you know, the people we love. And now, you know, the, the model that a lot of other cultures have, for example, of intergenerational uh, family members living actually in the same house probably won't work in sort of the Western sort of individual uh, model. But, you know, what you've got going there is ground floor, no stairs. You're, you're upstairs, you can take care. You know, when it's your turn, you move downstairs. You're that far ahead, Mark, but you're, you're, you're quite right. I hear you. No, and there's some other interesting examples. In fact, the architects, a uh, friend of mine who, who uh, were the architects for our project, Wooly Manfredis and her firm MMA, um, she uh, and her girlfriend uh, joined up with uh, a number of other, um, let's say, you know, aging women, uh, um, who uh, to put together an idea for a radical rest home, they call it, right? Wow. Aging together and designing it the way they want to, to have it work as a cooperative, you know, co-living community. So, yeah, I mean, there are other models beyond just the intergenerational um, that I think we're going to see more and more of. And, and those are great examples of social enterprise. Of course, I, I wanted to ask you uh, about social enterprise and, and being replicable at scale, because we know the traditional capitalist uh, rape and pillage, consume all resources in our way model uh, is, is, is just not supportable. 
but how do we confront that at scale through a, a social enterprise? How do we how do we get to the point uh, where we can redefine what business is actually supposed to be about? Do you see any light? I do, and just to finish on your other point, you know, yeah, we 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 can't we got to get you know the average size of that I, I think houses are three times bigger by square footage now than they were. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, you know, with fewer people living in them, so we can have bigger TVs to snap. But anyway, um, <laughs> so we, we, you know, it's obvious that we have to be more responsible with the limited resources we have, um, and we have to work together. And in terms of scale, um, I really do believe that most business sectors could be replaced by scalable social enterprise. Food production, for instance. Uh, one of the teams I was coaching yesterday, they're, they're looking to start a co-op food business uh, in this neighborhood. This type of model is increasing in Montreal. Uh, there's you know, more and more in terms of food. I mean, traditionally, you know, sectors like dairy have been, co have been cooperatives. That still exists, but uh, you're starting to see a diversification. Traditional organizations that did uh, frontline social services, their response in the past to food insecurity has been giving it out through a food bank. They're starting to start solidarity groceries. They're saying, hey, well, how can we get some of the middle class people in our neighborhood to right. mix in, to actually become members and start buying and supporting, and we'll, we'll cut them a fair price at a set margin, and that'll feed us, that'll be our social enterprise, and it'll feed back so we can improve our programming and align our mission better with those who really need it. And maybe those who really need it will also benefit by feeling less isolated because they're participating in a community um, with, with you know, others who, who uh, you know, are more in the mainstream, but at the same time, everybody faces the same challenges and everyone needs to eat. Right. You know, and, and when I'm coaching at D3 at Concordia, at District 3, often more and uh, many of the, the the innovations uh, that are proposed through the startup team ideas are related to food. And, and it's not just food, but then they can cover uh, and address other issues like climate change. So like local rooftop gardening or green wall vertical farms that also act to reduce uh, urban heating and heat island effect, which Montreal yeah. has in many neighborhoods. And right. guess, what, guess which neighborhoods are the affected most by heat islands? They're also the ones that have the most uh, that are food deserts uh, and tend to be the poorest. So, a lot of these um, these factors, as you know, they go they go hand in hand, and the and the innovations we're seeing are often, I find, increasingly um, robust in that they are scalable and they address multiple issues at the same time. Well, that that is fantastic. Listen, what would you say the average Canadian or American can do, say, to support a social enterprise? What I mean, I guess, what would be your call to action? Um, I think it's a buy local. I thought about that a bit, you know, and it's like the one thing you can do, uh, support your community, support your community economy by trying to buy local, um, you, you know, or just increase the number of transactions that are community oriented, whether they're financial by buying local or volunteering or just taking the time, you know, to, to engage uh, in your community in, in, in ways that, you know, break isolation. Right. Uh, I know in the current context of quarantine, kind of hard, but overall, and I think coming out of the, the current situation, we're already seeing that like the local government and provincial government here talking a lot more about the need to become uh, locally focused, self-sufficient, especially in areas like food and medical supplies, et cetera. I think there's gonna be a lot more thinking about how we can reorganize our economies. I mean, face it, 
and we've never had an opportunity like this where everything has been set down. Yeah, there's going to be a tremendous amount of pain, but at the same time, I'm pretty encouraged when I hear politicians who are, I would never have suspected before are talking about <laughs> more, you know, community socialized idea, you know, right. you know, requirements for moving forward. So, right. Um, yeah, I just really, what can you do? Like, think about what you can do. I, I, I think that's the answer comes from everyone. You know, it's, it's not prescribed behavior. It's to encourage creativity in the context of be sustainable and contribute. Don't just take. Um, yeah, yeah. Look at look at things as a system. They are. You know, we're just part of the, ultimately, we're just naked apes anyway, so it's like, <laughs> well, Eric, listen, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I want to congratulate you, uh, really, for all the fantastic work that you've done. I think Montreal and Canada is lucky to have, uh, have you and people like you, and there's so many of them doing this incredible work in social enterprise, addressing multiple issues uh, simultaneously. So congratulations uh, again, well, Eric. Thanks so much, Mark. And look, and I really want to say thanks for inviting me on. Hope we can do this again. Uh, it's been great to reconnect with you and Tanya. You guys were uh, definitely uh, important people in my life in the past. And uh, I'm looking, you know, we haven't seen each other in person in a while, but I'm really looking forward to that moment. So, uh, yeah. Well, we all, we're all looking for, forward to hugs and kisses, man. So you take care of yourself. Thanks again. Thank you. You take care too. We've been talking with Eric Steedman, a leading social enterprise expert in Canada, whose mission is to make business and organizations responsive to the needs of communities and the environment. Uh, you can check out what Eric is up to at coopinterface.ca. That's his uh, co-op's uh, website. Uh, it's under construction, but write it down and check it out later. Thanks again. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields, host of The Sustainable Century. Thanks for listening. I hope you liked it. If you did, I encourage you to check out The Sustainable Century blog at thesustainablecentury.net. Remember to click like in all the right places. Better yet, Pass the blog or pass the pod along. And remember, it's up to you. It's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world. <laughs>